Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Tuckwell, a senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I'm very fortunate to have with me today both Professor Franz Babel and Professor Meredith Borland. Professor Franz Babel is a paediatric emergency physician and the Professor of Paediatric Emergency Medicine at the Department of Paediatrics and the Centre for Integrated Critical Care at the University of Melbourne. He's the Director of Research at the Emergency Department of the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and Head of Emergency Research at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. He is the founding chair of the Paediatric Research in Emergency Department's International Collaborative called PREDICT, the Paediatric Emergency Research Network in Australia and New Zealand. Professor Meredith Borland is a paediatric emergency physician and the Director of Emergency Medicine at Perth's Children's Hospital in Perth, Western Australia. She was a founding member of the PREDICT Executive and is the current chair of PREDICT. She's an active researcher both within PREDICT and with local Western Australian collaborators. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Franz and Meredith. So we'll begin with a case. A 12-year-old girl was doing gymnastics and fell about one and a half metres while doing some bar work. Her head struck the timber floor and she had a loss of consciousness, followed within a minute by a brief generalised seizure lasting approximately 30 seconds. On regaining consciousness, she vomited twice. She could recall going to bed the night prior, but nothing today until she was in the ambulance en route to the hospital. Apart from the amnesia on examination, she had no focal neurology or evidence of a basal skull fracture. She had a palpable occipital hematoma, but no obvious palpable fracture. Her neck was non-tender and she could range it normally. She had a headache that she rated 5 out of 10. Up until I had a similar case to this recently, I was using the PECAN paediatric head injury rule to assist with imaging decisions in head injured children. But we now have the PREDICT guideline for children with mild to moderate head injury. So I wondered, Ranzel Meredith, would one of you mind telling us about the development of of this guideline and algorithm? Um, Sure. Thanks for having us on your podcast. Australia hasn't had a a national multi-institutional guideline for head injuries on in particular mild or or to moderate head injuries. And that was probably the main driver to develop this this guideline. In fact, the guideline incorporates the PCORN clinical decision rule at its core. Basically, we conducted Meredith and another 10 sites. We conducted a a multi-center validation study to see which clinical decision rule, there are three big ones and about 20 less well-known ones, um, which clinical decision rule would be best in our setting and which one was actually the most accurate. And what we found when we looked at these 20,000 kids and their clinical decision rules is that PCORN was the best rule in terms of accuracy. So we developed the guideline with PCORN at its core. The problem is that PCORN really focuses only on imaging or no imaging. It doesn't really put it in the context of 
all the other things that need to be considered in terms of head injury assessment, head injury management. And it also doesn't consider our specific contact. For example, we in Australia, New Zealand, we tend to observe much more than, than in North America and our ability to observe is different. So we try to construct a, an over guideline that would incorporate the imaging elements from PCORN, but expand beyond that. Meredith, do you have any other comment on that? I think that's very important that in, embedded in most Australian hospitals or Australian and New Zealand hospitals is the capacity to observe through short-stay units or more prolonged observation, which is, doesn't sound like it's something that is done routinely in, in the sites that PCAM use. PCAM use to uh, develop their rules. So I think it's really important to realise that we didn't want to change people's practice by use, by stopping people using observation as, as a tool. Oh, that's that's excellent. I think that's, you know, very helpful to us, as you say, you know, we're, we're not, we're a bit different to the United States and North America and have, having that ability to observe children, we can then use this guideline to, to help us it do that and not do unnecessary imaging, which is which is great. So just keeping that mind in, just as a you know basic start, which patients you know should we be using this algorithm and guideline for? Well, I think I use it for basically anyone who has a, a head injury, where I don't think, and that goes right from the very simple little trip over, bump the head, through to the really through to the more severe head injury, although in our algorithm we actually do just make it very simple, is if it's a, a, a child with a depressed GCF, the decision about doing CT scans is not difficult. We just, you know, that really off to the left, that happens as quickly as, as you can do. The, the bulk of the algorithm is really talking about what do you do in the ones where you're not quite sure should we observe? Should we scan? Should we admit? It gives us some structure to the thinking, particularly in the middle of the night sort of type stuff where the junior doctor or the, isn't quite sure what to do and they don't know who to ask. They can actually refer to the algorithm and follow a logical process down to make a decision about who they need to ask or whether they need to do a scan. Yes, and so sort of in between ones are the, 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 the challenge, aren't they often? So um, now I would suggest if listeners are not driving or exercising and have access to a computer that they actually go to predict.org.au and open up the algorithm for children with mild to moderate head injury. Now, we do need to consider the possibility of a cervical spine injury and abusive head trauma in any child with presenting with a head injury. Now, the algorithm starts off with saying that this is for assessment of a child within 72 hours. Do you mind just commenting on the 72-hour um, inclusion criteria? Yeah, so the, we chose 72 hours because there are, the, the PCAM was very specific and it was less than 24 hours and we felt that there are some patients that come to hospital with about 5% of the children present to hospital after 24 hours and interestingly enough in the paper we published on delayed presentations, we actually demonstrated that those children, in fact, had a higher incidence of having more significant injuries. That's probably a reflection is that they had a bump, 
no one was that worried about them and then they had persistence of symptoms and we found that there was an increase in CT scans in the children who came in in a delayed way but they also had a an increase in, in abnormalities on their scans so it, it is a, a slightly tricky area but I, th- I think people can be confident that with up to 72 hours it is still useful to use the algorithm and you need to put that into context when you're actually assessing a patient, looking at all the different risk factors that they have and then using the scanning in the manner that you do with the intermediate group. Mm. Oh, that's very interesting, isn't it? So so the ones that have sort of failed their home, home observation, basically we all almost need to be, you know, very wary of those. There are some special conditions that we need to be aware of that could increase the risk of a significant head injury in children. And what are some of these that are in the algorithm? Yeah, I mean, the subgroups that I think that need to be a priori considered a bit differently from your standard kid that walks through the door and has no underlying conditions. Uh, and these these special conditions are kids with possible abusive head trauma, teenagers who are drugged. Uh, or alcohol affected young infants, in particular uh, infants less than six months, uh, neurodiverse patients, uh, patients with neurodevelopmental disorders. And then there are the two kind of big beasts in that space, and that's ventricular shunts and bleeding disorders. They are dealt with as special populations based on evidence review and some of the work that we did within PREDICT and talking to the specialists in the field in order to tackle them in an as rational and an evidence-based way as possible. Okay, now that's that's very, very good to know. So, I mean, the algorithm then looks at risk factors for intracranial injury in all children and in different age groups. Now, what, what risk factors would be considered relevant to all children? So in all children, GCS of 14 or other signs of altered mental state. Um, So that's the child who's persistently drowsy. Um, Any abnormal neurological examination, assessment of the any child who's got severe mechanisms of injury, and severe mechanism injury is based on the PCAN definitions, which are outlined on the algorithm. And the other one is for all children is to worry about a child who's got a post-traumatic seizure, so a a seizure that's occurred after the head injury. And then you've got the age group less than two years where you worry about a palpable skull fracture, a non-frontal skull hematoma, a history of loss of consciousness for more than five seconds, or taking into account the parent's assessment, the parent is saying the child is acting abnormally because it's very hard in some two-year-olds to know whether they're uh, children less than two, whether their behaviour is normal for them. In a child who's over two or two and above, there are specifically signs of base of skull fracture, so looking for those specific signs, history of loss of consciousness, history of vomiting or severe headache. Now, severe is, you know, it, it needs to be taken in context of, you know, determining how the child's not just the child saying they've got a headache, it's 
you know, are they behaving like they've got, you know, ex- quite excessive pain? Okay, no, that, that's very good. And I've just got a few questions about some of those things, if you don't mind. In terms of assessing the GCS and altered mental status in younger children, how, how do you recommend we, we go about that? Well, the, there are uh, GCS scales that are specifically designed for the assessment of children. And what we incorporated into the PREDICT guideline is the APLS guideline for younger children. And there are various children's Glasgow Coma Scales, but the one we use is the one from the APLS Glasgow Coma Scale for children less than four years. And it still uses, you know, the big picture, eye-opening, best motor response, the best verbal response, but it, it gives for each of the scores, it gives phrases that cover children who are pre-verbal or who will not follow commands in the way you'd expect an older child to, to do. Okay, no, that's that's very useful. I think obviously APLS is a great resource, you know, to be using there as well. So one thing I found a little bit difficult at times, if in considering altered mental status, if a child is amnesic, how does that fit in? Is that considered them being altered at all or not so much? Yeah, so um, in the just to go back to the source, the the PCARN team, when they developed the PCARN clinical decision rules, they assessed amnesia as a factor as well, but it didn't shake out as one of the factors that make up the risk scores that we just discussed earlier. So it's a distinct topic from uh, altered mental status, but uh, it, it wasn't one of the factors that drove a risk decision for imaging that would put kids into a higher, higher risk category for an intracranial event and therefore for the for imaging. The, 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 yeah, I think that's probably that probably covers that question. Okay, no, great. That's very helpful. In terms of patients with the severe mechanisms, in with severe mechanism alone, does that require imaging necessarily? Or- so if you look at the algorithm where you have one risk factor or so under the intermediate risk you have greater than two risk factors or seizures or persistent headache or vomiting Mm. so one risk factor of just having a severe mechanism of injury wouldn't drive wouldn't necessarily mean that the patient would end up in the intermediate or the so generally that child would be considered under a in context of how the what any other symptoms that the child would have and if they had absolutely nothing else apart from the severe mechanism then they would probably be looked into uh, with some senior clinician input potentially even in just to observation or even discharge home with a suitable sort of backup advice in general that, that's not actually such an unusual presentation children can fall a reasonable distance and seem to have bounced and you go oh well they're not doing they haven't got any other risk factor that's why it's nice to have it really delineated out in the algorithm they haven't got that they haven't got that so they've actually just got the severe mechanism of injury so let's put it into context about what we how we manage that child and observation as we said is a tool that is used quite a lot in pediatric emergency departments just to give yourself that reassurance and then after a period of 
four to six hours and then you review the patient and if they're back to completely normal, then you can be reasonably confident that they're okay to go home. Oh, yes, that's very good. And I love the concept of actually saying it's a tool, like a CT scanner is a tool we use to image the brain and say observation is a tool that we use to assess a child to work out whether or not they're going to be safe. So that's that's great. With the seizures, does the time of onset of a seizure after the head injury indicate a different risk of intracranial injury? I just came across something talking about, you know, early or, or slightly delayed timing. Is that something you take into account? It's interesting, the seizure paper hasn't been published as yet, but there are they're really in the literature there are differences in how seizures are determined. There can be a seizure that happens right at the time of the of the of the head injury is a little bit different to a seizure that maybe occurs an hour or two after the head injury has occurred. In fact, the vast majority of these children, like your case, where the child's had a brief seizure at the time and then that hasn't persisted, is less concerning than a child who, who ends up having a seizure, you know, several hours later. It's actually relatively uncommon. And the children who have got the biggest risk who have had seizures are the ones who actually have got altered GCS when they arrive in the ED. So they're the children that we're going to worry about. So it's a combination of yes, they've had a they've had a fit, but they've also got altered conscious state. So that's when you you really use that as your evaluation of what risk the patient has at that time. And what about loss of consciousness? Now, it says for children less than two years, a history of loss of consciousness greater than five seconds is considered a risk factor. I just couldn't see with children more than two years, it doesn't sort of specify a duration. How do, how do we sort of gauge what's concerning there? Yeah. I mean, to cause I, I don't know if anybody can draw the line between the five seconds and you know, no five seconds or more than five seconds of, of LOC. I, I think any LOC is a risk factor. We, as, as in preparation for the study, we obviously looked at all the other scores and, and the cut points for what's, a, what's normal and abnormal, they, they all vary between the, the different clinical decision rules. But, but universally, LOC is, is a risk factor. We did keep the original PCORN definition for the length of LOC for less than two-year-olds because we tried to be as faithful to the PCORN rule, uh, the PCORN clinical decision rule, as at, at the core of the guideline. That's why we use that. But I think any LOC puts the, is into, into, into the risk category. Okay. Oh, great. That, that's very good. And what about vomiting? I find it sometimes difficult to know how much weight to put on the presence of vomiting. Um, so what sort of type of vomiting is more concerning in these children? Yeah. Vomiting, I think that's a really um, a big issue because it, it is a, a relatively frequent cause of concern and the frequency of vomiting and head injury is quite high. It depends a bit on the age. If you look at the algorithm, you will see that vomiting is not a factor in children under two, and it is a factor in children over two, because children under two, they, they have a lower threshold and they vomit for some other reasons that have nothing to do with the head injury. So it didn't it didn't pan out as one of the key risk factors that would uh, put them into a higher risk category. Having said that, 
we actually Meredith looked at, at 20, the, the 20,000 kids that we had in the AFS study, and that was published in pediatrics a few years back. And in that study, uh, Meredith, you should really talk about it, but 17% had, had, had any vomiting. And, and basically what we found was that if children had isolated vomiting, their rate of an intracranial injury was, was very low. However, if there were any other factors that came to this that were not isolated, it did not indicate just isolated vomiting, but any other factors, then the, the, the risk would, would increase significantly. So, so the driver of, um, of the risk of intracranial injury with vomiting is not the vomiting itself, it's uh, the combination with, with other factors. Does that make sense? Yeah. The, the other thing I'd add to that is the number of vomits was not so significant. It was the association with the other risk factors. Right. So, yeah, you know, people go, oh, they've had three vomits, which came out, I think, from the chalice rules in the beginning where they said three vomits you have to scan. Okay. And the, it's not the number of vomit, it's the actual evaluation of all the other risk factors to say, well, the child has got altered mental state to go along with it or a seizure or something else. That's when you might be saying, well, I think I need to scan this child. Whereas if they're just vomiting, they can actually just be observed or, you know, thought about whether there's actually something else going on that's causing the vomiting. Yeah, and I, I think the other element is that you know, clearly, if a kid has ongoing vomiting, let's say the kid has no other risk factors but has ongoing vomiting, that's not a child you want to send home. Mm. And, and uh, when you go to the bottom of the algorithm as well, we get to the point, let's say this is otherwise a, a you know, a low-risk patient, and, you know, it says discharge with advice if no other factors requiring admission, and these other factors that might be persistent vomiting, drug or alcohol intoxication, social factors, underlying medical condition or possible abusive head trauma. So there is a special mention that if you have nothing else but the kid has ongoing vomiting, then that's not a child you want to send home, even if it's isolated. Right, great. Yes, now that's that's very helpful. And I think having those, this sort of the second page of the algorithm with all the explanations and things is, is very, very helpful. Now, we briefly touched on earlier, you know, severe headaches. That's sometimes a little bit tricky to assess. And the other issue I sometimes have is sort of what analgesia, you know, can we be using for children with a severe headache and and will this affect our, you know, assessment of them? I mean, I think in the vast majority of these children, simple analgesics such as paracetamol or ibuprofen would be quite appropriate. We would very infrequently be thinking about anything stronger than that in the setting of just a head injury. It's a little bit different if the child's got some other injury, such a broken arm or something like that, where they might need something a little bit stronger for, for pain. But from a head injury point of view, that is usually enough to make you comfortable that you're dealing with the symptoms that they're complaining of. And I wouldn't be advocating strongly for use of opiates in this sort of setting at all. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be worried about something that, that goes, say, sadly put it in the severe category, and, and if you're in the intermediate category, it would sway you towards um, considering doing a CT scan because that's not typical for mild to moderate head injuries. Yes, and in terms of ibuprofen, if you sort of 
got in the back of your mind that this kid could end up having a, a bleed? Is that something you'd want to avoid? It's used pretty commonly in lots of settings. Lots of trauma settings. In lots of trauma settings because it has got advantages over paracetamol at times. So I, not a, you know, a single dose of um, ibuprofen is yeah. not going to really be of concern. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think the other thing to mention is paracetamol is obviously available as an IV dose. Mm. And that's, I think, in kids who are more on the severe end and you you need to give more than you need to get a drug on board and you'd like to use a parenteral drug, maybe they're vomiting, but intravenous uh, paracetamol is a great drug. Yeah, no, that's that's a really, really good point. So I thought we might just have a little chat about our hypothetical patient. Our patient has several risk factors for an intracranial injury, so we will now risk stratify her using the algorithm. She has a history of loss of consciousness, post-traumatic seizure, vomiting, a severe mechanism, and amnesia. So what risk group would we allocate this child to? Um, Yeah, so this child would definitely has uh, several risk factors. So we would uh, place her into the yellow or intermediate risk category where you'd consider imaging. And the reasons for that is she has more than two identified risk factors that we discussed earlier, and she has a post-traumatic seizure. Uh, And at that point, the recommendation would be that she should be reviewed by and with, with the senior clinician to consider the need for observation versus a head CT. Yep. Okay. No, that's great. And I think um, having sort of, you know, used this algorithm now, it, it actually is very clear with the different sort of risk and the age group and you look at the number of risk factors and it's actually quite easy to slot someone into, you know, the appropriate one and there is great advice there for um, what to do then and when to get senior advice and, and observation and things. So I think that's very nicely done there. Now, is there any role for sometimes people talk about sort of doing ultrasound or X-ray in the assessment of children with head injuries? Well, ultrasound is of not any use in this assessment of head injuries. The only age range that you would even consider it in would be the neonate, one with a patent fontanelle. But the problem with ultrasound in that setting, even in the baby less than six months, is you don't actually see beyond the top of the you see some of the ventricles and the top of the brain, but you don't actually see whether there's actually any damage to the um, or bleeding lower down in the brain. So it is not a tool to be used for assessment of trauma in, in young children. X-rays are, again, not a routine tool because we don't necessarily care so much about a linear, non-displaced, fracture and what we care caring about is whether there's anything underlying in the intracranial space on the brain bleeding or um or diffuse axonal injury or something of more significance so it's just irradiation which doesn't actually add any value to your your evaluation and we certainly don't you know wouldn't advise even in a setting where you don't have CT scans, we wouldn't be advising that that should be done as a as a um, alternative to doing a CT scan. 
Yeah, thanks for that. I think sometimes there's a temptation in a little one to think, oh, we could get away with an ultrasound, but it's not really giving the answer that we need if they have need do require imaging. So now the guideline then flows on to the periods of observation and disposition for the different risk groups. And it even, in terms of, you know, the frequency of observations and things, what should we, how often should we be doing sort of say neuro obs on, on children after, you know, a head injury if we're observing them? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. There is no evidence for for a specific routine or spacing of observations. Basically, this was a consensus-based uh, decision by the committee that came up with the guideline to, in essence, follow the NICE uh, recommendations. So what we say is that the observation period is up to four hours post the post-injury, including one hour return to normal. And in terms of the observation frequency, it should occur in a, in a setting that's the optimal environment based on the local resources. And then the frequency of observation should be half hourly for the first two hours, then hourly until one hour post, and then after four hours, continue two hourly, as long as the patient is in hospital. And this may be modified based on patient and family variables. So, so the, the bottom line would be that you'd have more frequent observation in the appropriate setting. And then as uh, it becomes clear uh, where the child is going during an observation period, you'd, you'd uh, spread out the observation. And, you know, we're aware that this is an important question because the nursing staff, they're often stretched and it's important to give them some kind of guidance around this. And this seemed like a reasonable spacing of observation. Yeah. I'd like to just emphasise, though, that the, if the child has had a fall, comes into ED, and and within two hours is running around and has got completely normal observations, it, we're not saying that they have to stay for four hours. So what we want to see is that they've gone back to completely back to normal before you actually let them go home. There are some children who don't, you know, in that four hours won't get right back to normal. And so we're saying, well, give them time to just recover a little bit before you make a decision about your disposition. Yeah. And there is good evidence that the symptoms that children with head injuries present with that they bleed off basically across all the symptom domains. They bleed off over time. And by, by, by documenting that, you can actually, because that's a dynamic process, you can document a trajectory of getting better rather than a trajectory of getting worse. So it's helpful. Yeah. Oh, no, that's very good. And, I mean, the other difficulty I sometimes run into is, you know, you've got a young child, they're being observed, and then the child wants to go to sleep. How do you manage that? Yeah, that's another really good question. And uh, in particular, with all the, the the time when kids actually play and when they get injured and when they actually rock up to the hospital, uh, it's often by the time they, they get to some kind of observation period, it's bedtime. So what, what we'd say in this situation is that the kids can go to sleep, in particular if they're on the on clearly on the milder end of, of things, they should go to sleep, but you should let them go to sleep, but but they may need to be woken in, intermittently to make sure that they actually return to normal if they're in this category where they really should be observed. Uh, having said that, if you have if it's late at night and it's difficult to assess a child, then it may be better, you know, and you have you have uh, decided that they need a period of observation. It may actually be better to keep them overnight, let them sleep and wake up and assess them in the morning 
when they um, when they are recovered and they're back to their normal state that's not impaired by them being tired and exhausted and then you can do a full tertiary assessment okay yeah no that's that's a very good point about the um yeah keeping them if you're concerned that way but it's nice to know you can just let them have a bit of a you know a bit of a snooze and then check on them periodically the other thing i find a little bit tricky is you've decided that you want to do a ct brain on a patient and trying to counsel the parents you know about risk of radiation and things is there any sort of resource or something you could recommend that we use to you know to try and explain to parents when we we're you know giving this this advice I think uh, it is really, it's a tricky area and you've got really two camps from a point of view of the parents. There's the parents who really want the, the test um, and there's the parents who really don't want to have the test and, and you can actually be, well, when we want them to have the CT, it's important to recognise that nowadays the protocols that are used for imaging heads in children are low, have generally widespread even in you know less tertiary centers and using low um, dose radiation so they they've really tried to minimize the radiation it's probably in the realm of you know something like three chest x-rays or something like that that the child's being exposed to it's not a huge amount okay and i i think we're only because we're trying to be very conservative we're only really using it when we feel we need the test to be done i find it quite frustrating the other way when you have a parent who's really keen to have the test and you're saying i just really don't need to do it mm. um, i'm quite comfortable and that's where why having this permission to observe rather than image is quite nice to try and reassure the parent yeah and i found it very helpful having you know say an algorithm or guideline and sometimes i just show it to the parents and say look this is where your children child fits in and this has been studied on thousands of children and so this is just trying to you know keep your child safe and this is what is recommended based on this guideline so yeah thanks for all the work on these things because they do come in um very very handy so do you mind if i can just just add one sorry and i can just add one more thing i mean the the original pecan cut points they were in part drawn based on the radiation risk so how do you how do you balance between missing a, an injury versus the radiation risk? And these lines were drawn based on that risk. Okay. So it, the, the the original PECON decision rule took that into account. Okay. Yeah. Oh no, that's that's a very good way of thinking of it. So that's yeah, inherently so flow, part of it. The flow, the flow charts that are behind the, the the decision rule. Yeah. Exactly. Great. And I just wondered, do you mind if I just ask something that's not actually in the guideline but comes up as a practical point? If you need, you've got a young child and you want to do a CT and they're the sort of kid that may not lie still, how, how do you approach what sort of sedation to use in these children? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question uh, uh, as well. We actually looked at this as well and we didn't look at uh, across the 20,000 kids, but we looked at 500 kids who underwent CT scan for head injury, and it turns out a very small minority needed sedation. So uh, it was, you know, surprisingly low uh, 
28 of the 500 needed to be sedated. And even children under two didn't routinely need to be sedated. I think the starting point should be to try and do it without sedation by by having an as supportive and friendly and environment and having the parents and the staff clued in as to what they how they can help. There there will be still a few children who who do need to be sedated uh, because they're either agitated or because they're too young. But even as I said, even in the children under two, the majority were uh, imaged without sedation. Um, you sometimes can use if it's not urgent. Urgent is you can use the try and get into the natural sleep cycle. They um, they it's the time of the afternoon nap or it's the time of the evening sleep. And you turn off the lights and let them fall asleep and scan them while they're asleep. And then you still have that small portion of kids who do need to be sedated. Mm. Oh no, that's some great tips about using non-pharmacological methods of trying to keep the kids nice and still and. Yeah, as you say, swaddling them up and, and having mum or dad there with them can be very, very helpful as well. So, no, that's excellent. Now, for our case, the CT brain was normal, and then we used the abbreviated Westmead post-traumatic amnesia scale. We have copies of this in our department, and it also can be found on the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute site. And after a number of hours, the patient was scoring 18 on 18 and was able to be discharged home with a paediatric head injury advice sheet. So, Franz and Meredith, do you have any final comments about paediatric head injuries and the use of the PREDICT tool? Can I just make a comment on the uh, amnesia, Gail? It's, it's interesting. I mean, Meredith is obviously from WA, I'm from Victoria, and we don't use amnesia scales in ED. Uh, okay. it's, it's, uh, it's more, uh, I think it's more used in New South Wales than elsewhere. And I wouldn't use amnesia necessarily as the cut point for discharge. The concern at that point is to make sure I'm not missing the risk of an intracranial injury rather than having all brain function restored into perfect order. I mean, uh, Meredith, you might want to comment on this as well. Yeah, um, WA. Certainly, we don't have a very sophisticated process for following up these children beyond their GPs, and we give the usual amnesia, concussion sort of amnesia sort of advice, and we find we, we actually did a study with the, with the local psychologists at our university in, in WA, and we demonstrated that most children actually recover from those sort of amnesic sort of type events within about three to four weeks. But they're not necessarily – what the parents need to realise with a reasonable head injury is that they're not going to be just back to normal within a day, mm. uh, a lot of them, and that the parents need to be aware of this and not sort of forcing them back into all their normal activities, as I'm sure the Westmead School has the process around that. Uh, so, yeah, amnesia hasn't been actually such a great tool, um, but concussion, an ongoing management of concussion is obviously pretty um, important that the children are uh, encouraged to get back to normal activities in a, in a graduated and, and um, manner. Oh, that's great to know. So that's really, as you say, not quite addressing our issue here about 
imaging. It's more a, a separate thing about the amnesia. Oh, no, thank you for that. So, look, I would like to thank you so much for your time today and all the wonderful work you've done. It's a great benefit to us, particularly working in rural areas, to have these wonderful guidelines that we can use. So I would encourage all our listeners to have a copy of this available to them and to use it for children coming in with their head injuries. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks.